Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Why must you ask me these questions? <laughs> so it, many questions, Joe. We're about to do an entire show of questions. That Please. is the nature of the show is questions. I mean... Yes, so leave me my mystery, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Well, we are going to be answering more of your questions this week, folks. And if you do have questions for this podcast or the other podcast, you can go ahead and send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. That's singular podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, if you don't want to do the email thing, you can go ahead and submit them on Discord for our Patreon supporters. We have a Patreon queue and podcast question channel. We will look there for questions. As a matter of fact, every question we have this week comes from there. Uh, if you are not a Patreon supporter, which we understand, uh, not everybody can afford it. We also have one set aside, which is just for the Q questions, but we do look there as well uh, when we don't have anything in any of the other ones uh, for folks that can't be Patreon supporters. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started with our first question, which comes from Jekka Hest, uh, a Diablo question for Lorewatch. At first, the prime evils were exiled to the sanctuary, and the later and later, Asmodan and Belial were banished to the mortal realms as well as their up, uh, as well when their uprising failed. I can only imagine some demons not being too happy about the not so successful siege of sanctuary. Do you think that a new order of demons has successfully tried gaining authority in the burning hells in the absence of the greater evils? Would this new order be squashed like a bug now? When if the greater evils reform in hell, or after? Uh, uh, ROS, or will they have another large uprising to deal with? Uh, and I am going to let Matt loose on this one. Go for it, Matt. Well, first off, yes, the the the, fir- the greater evils, the first three, uh, Diablo, Mephisto, and Baal, were technically exiled, although it turned out that the Dark Exile was a trick that they set up. They deliberately created the situation so that they would be banished to Sanctuary as part of their plan to convert all humans to their cause. That's the, the first part. That's that's how they ended up on Sanctuary. So you're technically correct in the first part of your, your statement. But the second part is completely false. Asmodon and Belial were not banished. In fact, Asmodon and Belial ended up splitting the rulership of Hell between them. And right up to Diablo 3, each of them was ruling half of Hell. Like, the others, the, the, the realm of the three primevils... I, mean, I keep saying primevils, I should be saying greater evils. Uh, the, the first, the, the, the realms of Diablo... Uh, Mephisto and Baal were under their control as Madonna Belial. Though they were ultimately loyal to their original masters, but since those masters weren't available, they had no choice but to obey Asmodon and or Belial, whoever was in charge at the moment of that particular area. The reason it was those two is because both Duriel and Andariel, the last two of the greater of the of the, the seven great evils, had gone to Sanctuary to serve Diablo, Mephisto, and Baal directly having realized, wait a minute, this is not, this doesn't make sense. Uh, Asmodon and Belial, they are not going to be able to, to actually run the show. 
and we think that the 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 big three set this all up. So they went to to uh, Sanctuary and basically offered their services, which were accepted, and that's why we fight them in Diablo Two. Now. In terms of the not-so-successful Siege of Sanctuary, it's debatable how not-so-successful it has been. I mean, in Diablo 3, Diablo, with the power of all seven, goes up to heaven and messes things up. Pretty handily, too. Like, when we and, get there, things are not great. And when he does that, um, the it's the angels not only fail to stop him, they, the angels had, had basically pulled back anyway, because there's nothing to fight over. Remember that the, the Eternal Conflict was ultimately over the Pandemonium Fortress because it was ultimately over the World Stone, the Eye of Anu, because that thing had the power to shape reality. It could create new worlds. With it gone, there wasn't much point to the Eternal Conflict, and the angels are kind of like, why are we even doing this? Why fight here in Pan just because the demons want to? Like, you know, j we don't particularly get anything out of this. So keep that in mind. The, 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 the evils are kind of not doing too badly, even... Even after that whole thing. Uh, now, obviously, Diablo and the other six, you know, when Diablo had all seven of them in himself, they were all contained in the, the Black Soul Stone for a while. But when um, Malthiel smashes it open and uses it against you during the fight in, at the end of uh, Reaper of Souls, that frees them. They're all free. Mm -hmm. And it's been stated, as the Diablo 4 team has come out and said, they're all, you know, we know two of them are showing up immediately in Diablo 4. Uh, Duriel and Andariel are going to be seen. They're in the game. So during that period of time, they got free. They're all they're all free now. They're all in their own realms. They're all you know they're out there somewhere. Does that mean so? In terms of like how successful or unsuccessful, there that's that's a point for debate. I mean, the plan went exactly as they intended it to go, and especially Diablo's plan, which I, none of the other seven, the other six did not agree to Diablo's part. He didn't tell them about that. That was very much a I'm that I'm so duplicitous that I'm even doing this to my own because you know we're demons and we do this kind of thing to each other. Uh, but up until Diablo three, Asmodon was absolutely in control of his port of hell, and so was Belial. The two of them ruled hell. They were not exiled to, to the mortal plane. Even while Belial was in Chaldeum pretending to be the emperor, he was in fact the ruler of half of hell. Uh, that's why, in fact, that's the whole point of Diablo 3 is that the, the falling of the stranger implies that angels come to Earth. The, the, you know, the, the thing that strikes Tristram that turns out to be Tyrael, it's the harbinger of the fact that hell itself is coming to Earth, to, to Sanctuary. And that's what you see in Diablo 3 is, you know, when, when you go up to confront Asmodon, he is leading all of hell's, you know, all of it right to Sanctuary. That's what's coming out of the rift. It's the entirety of hell. It's the forces of the of the darkness. It's quite possible that following the end of return of of reign of Reaper of Souls, I keep saying return and reign. God, that there's no like hell could be just as rocked back as the heavens were because they got destroyed when they tried to come through into sanctuary. Like one being stopped them and and killed their leader. He fought their way. He or she fought their way through the entirety of hell's forces and cut down Asmodon right, you know, just straight up did it. There was no no dithering about this. He just straight up walked through hell to get to Asmodon and then put Asmodon down. He or she, or they, you say they because, you know, whatever. That's so it's quite possible that following that then Malthiel's forces show up and start ravaging Sanctuary. The demons really don't have anything to do with that. They're they're quite busy, like, trying to figure out what's going on. And then at the end of, of Reaper of Souls, all of the evils are free. I don't think there's time for any great revolution in, in hell to form. Now, there are we know there are beings in hell who are ex extremely powerful, despite not being one of the seven. Um, we've met some of them, like Izual, for example. Uh, there's others. For instance, Mephisto had a son and a daughter. I put this in like the, the airiest of air quotes, because we have no idea how Mephisto had offspring. Did did. Did Mephisto bud them? Did Mephisto, like, is there a, a mortal somewhere who, who had Mephisto's children? Did a demon bear Mephisto children? Do they do that? It doesn't seem to be how they do that. So I don't, we have no idea what their relation is, but, but we know that, for instance, Lilith is the daughter of Mephisto. So for all we know, there's whole legions of demons who are like on the order of Lilith. Lilith is nothing to be sneered at in terms of raw power. Uh, Lilith is probably more powerful than than some of the seven. Like 
Juriel or Andariel are probably not more powerful than Lilith. And the only the, the only thing that being one of the seven gets you is being one of the seven means that when Tathamet died, you were one of her six, seven heads. Mm-hmm. That's what the, the seven come from. They are the essence of Tathamet's seven heads. Tathamet was a big seven-headed dragon. And when it died, its heads you know, split from its body and became the, the seven. So they were there first, but that's basically it. You could be a demon and be just as powerful as one of the, of the seven. If you know, you had enough time and you accumulated enough power, we've seen demonic beings of extraordinary power. Uh, Diablo immortal is going to be all about one of them. Who's one of Diablo's former servants. Who's now basically during the period of time that Diablo was not seen and no one knew what had happened to him. This being comes forth and starts trying to collect the shards of the world stone to, to gain more power for itself. If it had succeeded, it probably would have taken over Sanctuary. Clearly, it didn't succeed because we got a Diablo 3, but it still was a threat that had to be faced. There's there's a lot of fluidity in the demonic hierarchy, so we can't say for certain what would have happened if the if this. But if all seven come back, there's no way they're going to let anybody else rule hell. They they don't like each other, and they fight each other constantly, but they have the kinship of being one of the seven original demons, and. If you're not in that club, they're not gonna, the seven are not going to let you be around. They're not going to let you rule hell in their place. Absolutely not. It, so, almost, it almost reminds me of like those old cartoons with like, you know, I'll, I'll use Transformers as the example. Like Megatron goes missing and Starscream takes over the Decepticons until Megatron shows back up. And then Starscream starts backpedaling of, no, I was just keeping the seat warm for you. Here's your crown back. Like, I, I don't think I think the demon hierarchy and Diablo, like they recognize the original seven as you know, the rulers. So I think there'd also be an element of even if something else was in charge or trying to be in charge, it would either get eradicated uh, or would bow down pretty quickly to avoid getting eradicated uh, because there's a, there's something of an element to that. It, it's, I mean, it depends on the star screen you're talking about, but we're not going to get into transformers lore here uh, because raids isn't here. But anyway, <laughs> um, there's, I would say that there's an element of, there's an element of deference, certainly, although it's it's somewhat limited. I mean, for instance, example that the the four the four lesser evils of Andario, Duriel, Asmodon, and Belial did band together, and they at least thought they were overthrowing uh, Diablo, Baal, and Mephisto. Sure. And and they the fact that they didn't realize they were manipulated didn't change the fact that they tried to do it. So there is certain amount of squish in this, but I think Asmodon would sooner rule hell. You know, he would sooner see. The, the big three in charge and plot against them than to see some usurper come along who isn't even one of them. Very little chance. Um, but the other thing is, of course, is we don't know what the current relation between the seven is because right now I'm sure none of them like Diablo very much. Well, likely. Yeah. Because of that whole thing where Diablo subsumed them all into himself and attacked heaven with all of their power. They, there's nothing they hate more than letting somebody else use their ability. So, they're probably pretty mad at him. They're probably also all each of them blaming the others for the failure of it. Because keep in mind that the the idea that they lost because a human stopped them and whatever you want to call the Nephilim, it's, they're still human. As as Tyrael himself points out, that all that power is still a mortal being. You know, a, a mortal heart still rules all of it. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of potential for conflict after the fact the past decades in hell have probably been pretty interesting in the setting, but in no way were Asmodon and Belial banished to the mortal realm. In fact, with their defeat, hell was probably pretty destabilized. Yeah. Uh, because for, instead of being ruled as they were for decades, keep in mind that like the dark exile was centuries ago and Asmodon and, and I mean, uh, and Ariel and Duria left hell to, to help find the brothers decades ago. So it's just been Asmodon and Belial in charge for decades, and then suddenly nobody's in charge, and yeah. then suddenly after like a period of confusion where we're like nobody, you know, the, everyone's trying to figure out what happened. A whole bunch of demons got destroyed, and they're trying to reform. There's a whole bunch of chaos. Suddenly, all seven of them show up again, and they're probably all pretty mad at each other. Is it possible there's a civil war in hell? Yes, and it might be the armies of the various members of the seven. And it could be perfect, and it could be perfectly uh, placed or, or filled in then too, because especially with Lilith coming back and whatever her plans might be, that might play into it perfectly. That might be the opportunity that f whatever 
whoever is bringing Lilith back was waiting for was for that moment where the seven were once again at each other's throats and not focused on anything other than themselves and getting things under control. Which well, you certainly wouldn't want to try to bring Lilith back while her father was on sanctuary or unoccupied. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. Um, for one thing, Lilith's brother was destroyed utterly mm-hmm. during the original Sin War. Uh, by destroyed utterly, I mean made to not have a, ever existed. Yeah, he was unmade. By uh, the power of Odysseus Queldroma. And that's the other thing. The Sin War proved to the various you know, angels and demons alike that humans were dangerous. And of course, demons being demons, they saw an opportunity. But that's what Lilith's plan always was. Lilith's plan was always to make these beings. Yeah. She, she planned to have children with an, with an Arius. She planned to train those children. This was her goal from yeah. the beginning. An army, an army to overthrow heaven and hell, and to yeah. to basically end the war because well, then she wins. Yeah, and then she'd be in charge. And she, you know, clearly she thinks she can beat all seven of them. And I mean, to her to her credit, so far her plan's been pretty good. I mean, I mean, at least her children, thing that's- her children are definitely capable of doing it. I mean, we've seen that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things that the only thing that's really stopped Lilith so far has been those children. Yeah. It was her son that that banished her in the first place, or at least helped to. But what happened? It was Anarius who actually did it. Anarius using the World Stone. But it was. So there's a lot going on here. Um, And what happens when those kids are are focused on the same goal that she is? Especially now, like, and that's the other fascinating thing. Like, we've just gone through a huge traumatic event in Diablo 3. And we're talking about Diablo 4, where how much of humanity has been wiped out. Like, humans, Nephilim, might be just willing to do whatever it takes to end that conflict so that that doesn't happen again. So, I mean, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, there is a lot to it. But in terms of whether or not there could be a new order ruling in hell. I do not believe so because I believe the seven came, the seven returned to hell relatively quickly after the events of Diablo three. The, uh, we know that the, the essence of the seven was released when, when, uh, Malthiel broke the soul stone. We know that Malthiel's defeat freed all seven of them and freed them from each other. So it would have been like, you know, in demonic terms, they were just barely getting used to not having to do what Asmodon and Bilal told them to when then all seven of them were back. Right. And now it's like, oh, God, now what? You know, and we don't know what happened. We don't know if any of them, if, if any of them decided not to stick around and left the hells. We don't we have no idea what's been going on. So I don't know, but I don't think it's as simple as just a re- as a straight up rebellion. I think it's going to be much more, much more like a seven way internecine fight. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that, and I think I think that's probably the more most likely as far as that goes. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Just you know, just to say it yet again because I think it's very important. Asmund and Belial were never banished anywhere. They went to they went to sanctuary of their own accord, as did Andariel and Duriel. All four of them went to to sanctuary of their own accord, deliberately breaking the pact with the angels and not caring because they knew the angels wouldn't do anything. The angels, the angels were not focused on sanctuary. The angels did not care about sanctuary. The only one who did was Tyrael, and they weren't worried about him because, yeah, they, yeah. as far as they knew, he'd blown himself up. You yeah, know, when, the he, angels... when he destroyed the world stone, they they had no they had no interest in what heaven was going to do because to the to the demons who weren't the the three originals that you know Diablo Baal and Mephisto wanted to use humans as, as pawns in the in the eternal conflict. The other four did not. At mm-hmm. first, they were like, oh, no, no, that's a terrible idea. This is our war. We should be fighting it. We don't you want to use those. You want to give them the idea that they can fight celestial beings. And, you know, to his credit, Asmodon is the greatest strategist in hell. He is the greatest, maybe not strategist, maybe tactician is the right word. Yeah, I'd I think Diab- Diablo might be the greatest strategist. I would I would think that's more that. accurate. Yeah, but. Asmodon is the greatest tactician. Asmodon is the one who engineered the, the defeat. They may have been playing to lose, but still they had to make it look good. And Asmodon came up with a way to beat them. That was plausible. That they looked at that and thought, oh yeah, that could actually work. Okay. You know, and not only that, he beat he's beaten many forces from, from heaven. He's engineered countless defeats for the for the angelic forces. Asmodon's extremely good battlefield commander. And he looked at this and said, you want to give them the idea that they could fight angels. What happens when they're out of angels to fight? Are they going to just stop? 
And you got to keep that in mind. It's the same thing that Tyrael realized at the end of Reaper of Souls. It's like nobody from heaven or hell can stand against this one Nephilim. What happens when he realizes that he's going to die someday? What happens when he decides to, t- to turn his power in a different direction? And now add that to every, imagine if every human on Sanctuary woke up to the fact that they were an Ethelon and began re- achieving their true power. Which don't forget, that was one of the things that was there, that Lilith was trying to do in the Sin Wars. That is exactly Lilith's goal. That yeah. That is exactly what Lilith wants. That's exactly why Lilith created the original Nephilim in the first place. And if you look at the original Nephilim, look at beings like Bolkathos, Fiakla Giar, Esu, you know, Linarian, Rathma. That's Rathma's Linarian. They're the same being. Mm-hmm. Look at their power. Imagine if all humans were that. That was so terrifying to Inarius, he used the world stone to turn the, the Nephilim into humans to make sure that their offspring wouldn't be nearly gods like they are. And the world stone is gone. And all that power of the world stone, that, that power it contained, the power of the original primordial Anu, where did it go? The only place in creation where you can find that kind of power nowadays is in a Nephilim because they are angel and demon combined. They are that power recombined, the power that split when, when Anu tore itself apart and made two beings out of itself, one of evil and one of good, the diamond warrior Anu and Tathamet. In their creation, the splitting of the primordial Anu, the only place in creation where you can find the power from before that is in an Ephelim, which is exactly what Lilith wanted. And it all ties into this. What you're looking at with Lilith's return is something that could sweep away the order of both heaven and hell. You forget the order of demons trying to overthrow the hells. You might see everything get thrown down. Because it changes everything. Yeah, and that's been her scheme this entire time. That's why she made them. That's why she got, you know, Inarius to fall in love with her. That's why she had children. And the weird part is none of this means that that Lilith wasn't sincere when she made her offer to, to Inarius. But Lilith is Lilith. You know, Lilith's nature is a certain way, and you can't take the nature of these beings out of them. Just like Anarius tried to rule like a tyrant, because as an angel, he doesn't have constant. He's like, he's a being of fixed, rigid perfection. He's not a being who rolls with things. And, you know, so, so there's a lot to this. I, I, I think it's an interesting question you're asking, but it needs to be thought of in, in, the, in the grander scheme of what's actually happening. What. The seven evils might be occupied tearing each other's throats, and they might very well realize we need to stay the heck out of Sanctuary because it has not worked for us. We just spent countless centuries on this plan, and in the end, we're exactly where we were, and we didn't get anywhere. So we don't know what we're going to see. I do think it's interesting to consider that we might see Hell unified in its opposition to Lilith out of self-preservation. But the question is how long that's going to take to get there. We don't even know if they know what she's doing. We don't even know if they know she's back because we don't even know where she's back from. The place she was banished doesn't exist. It's a place of outside of existence. So, yeah, the fact that she's back implies a lot about the person who brought her back. Let me put it that way, and I'll stop there. Yep. <laughs> well, hopefully that gives you some good uh, some good Diablo background there, Jekka Hest. Uh, but we are going to move on, I think, to our next one, which is going to be from our favorite radioactive lizard, Godzilla. Uh, question for Lorewatch. With the announcement of Sylvanas, written by Christy and narrated by Patty, uh, what is the one thing you would like to see it covered in the book? I think the thing I want the most is for Sylvanas to How I Met Your Mother style narrate the shenanigans of Grumpius Maximus farm boy Nathanos as he tries to adapt uh, to the posh upper-class lifestyle of Silvermoon city to anduin okay uh we can call it my fair ranger <laughs> while i would definitely enjoy some shenanigans regarding that i'm actually am looking forward to having some sylvanas forward narrative one of my favorite books was the arthas book written by christy golden because it gave another perspective of arthas that expanded what we knew about him from the game And it gave us more insight to what he was going through, the process of becoming the Lich King, uh, everything, like just basically everything. Now, with this, we haven't really had something from Sylvanas's perspective for a while since I think Edge of Night, really. And even then, there's war crimes parts are from her perspective. There are some war crimes parts from her perspective. Yes, that is correct. I apologize, but 
things have been so different for her since Mist. Since I mean, we've gone through how many expansions, how many things, how many how many deals or or conversations has she had? What has she found out? And we keep asking ourselves a lot of questions about what her motivations are. But we also don't know how much she was privy to before she got down there. Like, I see a lot of people comment about all these uh, furtive looks that she gives. And they like, this, like she has these realizations in the, in the cinematics. That's true. But we don't know what she knew coming into it. And we don't know how she's been reacting to all of this up to this point. What I expect is a characterization run up uh, to essentially the raid that we're going to go and, and try to beat her up a little bit. I expect us to get her mentality on it. I expect us to get her mentality into the decision-making process that involved Nathanos. That's kind of what I expect. I expect the internal monologue of Sylvanas throughout the events over the last several years. I would not be surprised if the book reveals the content of the agreement or discussion between her and Helia. Because it's another wild card that we have never... We know that they talked... We know that there was a discussion happening and a deal made before we got there as players. We don't know anything else. We've never been told the content of that, and it's been, what, three expansions at this point? So I expect that we're probably going to find out some more details about that. We're probably going to find out some more details about her relationship with the Valkyr and how that all sort of panned out. And in particular, her discussion with Nathanos before Nathanos left to go try to uh, cause mayhem in the Battle for Azeroth. Because don't forget, in the Shadows Rising book, up before that release, there was that that sort of quest point where Nathanos and Sylvanas, after the Magora, she sends them off. We don't know what his mission was besides what he said in the book. We don't know the content of their discussion. We don't know what she was ta- what she tasked him with beyond that. Or what she promised him and what, like, the content of there. And I think that I would expect those gaps to be sort of filled in more than anything else. Do you have any expectations out of it, Matt, besides just more wonderful writing from Christy Golden? Um, what I'd like to see, I don't, I don't have any expectations. We'll see what we get when we get it. Um, what I would like to see, though, is I want to see... I don't even know how to put this to people because you know people look at Sylvanas and they see the character who's done all the things Sylvanas has done. But one of the things that interests me about Sylvanas is this is somebody who never expected to be Ranger General. She never wanted the job. It, it, it fell to her as middle daughter when, A, most of her family, including her brother, was slaughtered. Mm-hmm. And B, her sister refused it, and instead of becoming Ranger General, went off on a vengeance rampage and left her holding the bag. I, I don't think people really ever think about that aspect of Sylvanas' life. That Sylvanas went from the middle daughter, who, while certainly extremely skilled and, and talented at you know, the family tradition of being a, a ranger, had no interest in, in you know, succeeding her mother, never thought she would. I mean, A, her mother would live for a very long time, and B, her mother had Illyria, and Illyria was clearly going to be the, the successor. Illyria was born for it. She was the ultimate ranger. Um, Sylvanas herself, when she, when the statue, before the, the complete split of the, of the alliance uh, from the, the High Elves, Sylvanas was the one who left the memorial on the statue of Illyria that went up in Stormwind. And if you ever read it, Sylvanas said she was the best of our order. Mm-hmm. You know, she she idolized her sister. She did not expect to ever be in that position. And then one day it all changed. And one day the, the orcs came and murdered her whole family. You know, the only survivors were her, Alaria, and Farisa. That's it. Everybody else, her mother, all of her cousins, her uncles and aunts, they were all killed by orcs. And, you know, Alaria very clearly decided, well, um, I'm going to have to kill every orc I see should go where there are more orcs so after she went off and, and helped the alliance defeat the horde at lordaeron decided to go on the expedition to to draenor because there were more orcs there to kill and had very little interest in stopping you know at any time and point you know the illyrian we have now has had a thousand years to deal with this the illyria we had at the end of the second war wanted every orc dead and mm-hmm. didn't want to stop for anything much less 
running the, the it, it no longer she no longer cared about running the, the the being ranger general she no longer cared about being in charge of the far striders it meant nothing to her now and so there's sylvanas who's also lost her mother and her whole family and then the one person she probably would have leaned on the person she turned to thinking okay what do we do is like i'm going to go kill everything and you can just if you want to pick up some pieces go for it that moment shapes everything else we see from Sylvanas. It colors everything about her characterization. It colors who she became because she didn't leave when the, when the scourge came to destroy Quelthalas, Sylvanas fought and would have won. If not for somebody betraying her, somebody on the, her side betraying her to the scourge, she would have beaten Arthas. She had all the advantages. She would have won. I always think about these moments, like the, the, the way she, when she took on the, 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 the mantle of her mother, when she became Ranger General, she stepped into a role that she had never intended to, to, to have, and she excelled at it. She was so good at being Ranger General that when the prince came to her and said, you know, this human that you've adopted, this pet thing that you've got, go get out, get rid of it. She's like, excuse me, uh, I, are you the Ranger General? I'm Prince. I, are you Ranger General? Well, if you're not Ranger General, then as long as I am Ranger General, I am going to be the Ranger General. Thank you. If, you. if you've decided that you want to relieve me of that position, go get your father to come tell me I'm not Ranger General anymore. Until that time, he's staying right where he is because I said so. Now, not many people would have had the stones to tell the prince who's going to rule someday to go eat it. But Sylvanas Windrunner did. I want to see that. I want to see her life as a child. I want to see her with her family. I want to see, like, what was she like? You know, she often talked about how it was her. It was like Illyria and Verisa were the two, like, like the white moons, the pale moons, and she and Lirath were the golden moons. And there's that whole bit about, you know, what was her relationship with Lirath like? What was he to her? Yeah, Obviously, we never really they get to close. see that either, right? Like, yeah, there's all this stuff. What was her mother like as a mother? Like, clearly, she was very devoted to, to her role as Ranger General. How'd that come about? Who was her father? Do they all have the same father? Do they have, like, did, did they have multiple fathers? You know, and I don't, I don't care. You know, uh, that's, that's elf society. They can, you know, who knows? People get into relationships. They get out of relationships. But there's a lot of complexity in these relationships that we've, we see the effects of them afterwards, but we've never seen them. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in Sylvanas as a person. Her life. Yeah. The, the things just, we didn't get to see. Yeah, exactly. Because the first time we ever really get to see her, she's getting killed and turned into a monstrosity. And her entire World of Warcraft experience has been as a monster. And at some point, you have to deal with the, like, the person that was in there, the person that she came from, the person that she was. So that's what I want to look at. Because if Christy has shown... If you read War Crimes, again, I, I recommend War Crimes almost every single time we talk about this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. War Crimes is absolutely brilliant in how it shows you that, yes, yes, she's a monster. Yes, she's a thing. You know, she would she's the kind of person who absolutely would not hesitate to murder an entire school full of orphans if they get her five seconds of advantage. But she does feel this the way she wants her sister back with her. And yes, it's selfish. But it's the kind of selfishness you can understand. Someone's been literally dead. They, they've been alone. They've been trapped without anything. And now suddenly they're starting to feel things again. Maybe it's because of certain real life issues, but I can relate to this. But it also like, makes, so, it also makes know, this, sense given what we know about her life too, right? Like we don't like her life was isolation to a certain, from what we know about it. So the parallel definitely, I mean, it's there and learning more about that and how she how she uh, going, no, going from the, yeah going from a member of a family to somebody suddenly there's three of you left and one of you is just gone and one of you is too young to do anything and and you know that's the thing Verisa was too young to to be ranger general even be considered for it Sylvanas didn't think she was of the right age either Sylvanas didn't expect it but when Illyria went off and suddenly there she was by herself someone had to do it and so she stepped up and she did it and she did it well enough that she could tell the prince to go eat it and that that's to me that's the thing to think about it's not that she was brave enough to do that it's that she knew she'd win yeah because he didn't she, he didn't he didn't do anything he couldn't do anything yeah. how did she get to that point she was at the point where she knew i can tell him to go to go eat it and his father will not back him up 
and do I, am I interested in her relationship with Nathanos? I kind of am, but I'm interested more in how it comes from her. You know, how did she decide this? Is it because she saw Illyria with Turalyon and wanted to understand what her sister saw in a human? Like, where did it come from? Where did she decide this is the guy I'm interested in? And was it the fact that he didn't treat her like Ranger General? Like he didn't act like it was a big deal so she could feel like herself again? She didn't have to feel like she'd stepped into her sister's role. She could be Sylvanas again with him because he, that's who he saw. We don't know. We, have, we don't know how they got together. I would be interested in seeing it. I just don't want to see too much of... I'm quite frankly bored to tears with modern Nathanos. He is dull. I am not interested in him. The sooner he gets put down again, the better. But, but living Nathanos... When they were together, when they got together, because the, there's a tragedy there that we, we all kind of know. But in order for the tragedy to really resonate, we need to actually experience the happiness. You, you don't feel a tragedy unless you see, to, to use an example from Hamlet, you don't really get the tragedy of Hamlet until you understand what Hamlet could have been, what he could have done, what he didn't get to do. There's that. That's the, the tragedy here is not, the, you know, seeing them in death, you see that it's, it's a fall, it's a disgrace, that it's a horrible thing that's happened to them. But seeing them alive shows you how much they lost. And I, wa- I do want to see that. I will say that, too. I think that's enough, though. I've probably talked quite a bit. Yeah, I think that, I think that, I think that covers the, the question. I think we can move on to our next one, which is a question from Tetsemi. Question for Lorewatch, and there are some spoilers in here for 9.1. Uh, regarding this World of Warcraft lead narrative designer, Steve Denouser confirmed on Twitter that Kingsmorn, the malevolent runeblade wielded by Anduin Rin in the Chains of Domination opening cinematic, is Chalamain Reforged. If Anduin recovers from his current situation and retains the sword, do you think he'll continue to wield it, or would he try to have it purified or destroy it i don't see why he wouldn't try to purify it like we see it being infused with something in that in that opening cinematic where or before the opening cinematic when we actually see the jailer and sylvanas walking into that forge and one of the jailer's minions is working on the blade itself he takes something from a dimension, a pocket thing that he has access to, hands it to the minion. The minion then infuses it into the blade itself. But I think either I don't think Anduin would let whatever that malice is, whatever that is, sit there. I think he would find or try to find a way to either uh, remove it or basically purify it so that it could be back to his father's legacy, because just like him that's that's basically all that remains for him of his of his father at that point. So if it's going to be twisted, if he comes out of it and he's back to normal and oh by the way, your the, the blade, the blade that your father wielded were blades that your father wielded. Uh by the way, it's corrupted now. Uh so your last living memory or, or thing that you're trying to use as a symbol of keeping on to your father's pride and teachings, well, sorry, I don't think he's going to take that very well. And I think that he would find a way or try to find a way to purge it or purify it in some manner to make it what it was. Uh, Maybe it becomes more than what it was, too, because at this point now it's a rune blade. And one thing we do know is that rune blades, when they're shattered and reforged, become stronger. Like, that's something that's been established. We've talked about it a bunch of times here. It's also entirely possible that he shatters the blade, reforges it, or has it reforged into something new, maybe with the help of Darien, maybe with the help of the Primus uh, later on. But with all of this runic knowledge around him, the Primus we know being brought back to his senses and given his memories back, um, and now having all that exp- expert knowledge of runeforging that he had before, maybe it becomes more. Maybe it becomes an infusion of what it was, what it became, and what it will be with some maybe pieces of Anduin in it at that point. Maybe that's what happens with it. But I don't think it's going to stay as it is. I don't think it's going to stay Kingsmorn for very long after he comes out of it, if he comes out of it, because I don't think Anduin as a character would let it sit like that. What do you think? Well, the weird thing about Charlemagne is it's actually it's two, swords. two swords. Yeah. And it's, it's not one sword that can split into two swords because cool magic. It's originally two swords that were combined into one because each half of it was being used by a guy who was split into two people and then combined back into one. Yeah, it's a weird thing. There's a lot to this thing's original legacy as an elven. It's an elven weapon. It's 
goes back, you know, thousands of years. It goes back to the uh, yeah, the, the War of the Ancients. The sword Shalator, Shalator and Elamain, right? Yeah, and it goes back to the War of the Ancients. This thing is ancient, ancient, ancient blade. So I, I, I think a lot about we, we, we've everything that Joe said is true, and I, I'm not, I have no problem with anything Joe said. I just think a lot about has he tried pulling it to two swords yet? <laughs> Like, what if that would be hilarious if he just pulls it to two swords and it's like, you know, wait, all that stuff I did just falls out, like flunked the ground and it's back to being at Shalimane and, and, you know, Shalator and Elamane again. It's like, did you know when you started monkeying with it that it's two swords? Like, has anybody, did anyone tell him that? It's just one of the things I think about. Um, I I definitely think Anduin would want to to cleanse it. Uh, Although, keep in mind, we don't, know that the blade is actually malevolent we don't yeah the sword might it might very well just be mournful i mean we don't know what frostmorn gets a lot of bad rap because it was drawing on the power of the maw but we've never seen anything that frostmorn had a personality um it's not like the inspiration for these kind of weapons is from michael moorcock's elric of melnabone or melnabone i honestly cannot pronounce this word i don't know how it's, it's pronounced but the the blades in that the 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 two blades were Stormbringer and Mournblade, and you'll notice they're calling these Mournblades. Mm-hmm. And and wow, that clearly those are the inspiration for them. King's Morn, uh, Shadow Morn, Frost Morn. These are there's there are a specific kind of of Rune Blade called Mournblades. In the the original inspiration for them, uh, they were actually intelligent beings. The swords had had personalities. They were they were terrifying in their power they were so powerful that like the lords of chaos were afraid of them and should have been because one of them destroyed the entire world and remade it in its own image so we don't know in world of warcraft how that works we don't know if like frostmourne had a mind we don't know if kingsmourne right now has a mind if it if it has thoughts or or anything we don't know if they went and got varian rin's soul out of some place and jammed it in the sword and that's what's in the sword right now, screaming that it's, you know, that, that we have no idea. And why it was called Kingsmourne. You know, you never yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, and if I've managed to hit on a successful theory, you know, yay me. But uh, I, I definitely think that Anduin, as as the person he is, I'm just going to say, you know, we should go on to Volkan's question because I really want to talk about that in relation to this question. Well, there's two that are, are yeah, related, but I want to go. We'll I want to go to Volkan's question and then we can do Zul's after if we get to it. Yeah, I think I think because these all play off each other really well. Uh, Vulcan asks, "Can you recover from being a Death Knight?" I don't know if that's what Anduin is. I don't think that's what Anduin is. Yeah, I, what Anduin seems to be is much more akin to a vessel for the, you know, directly a vessel for the jailer's power and will. He's being driven around like a car. Um, it, it doesn't seem like if you look at the way Arthas reacted, Arthas. There are multiple kinds of Death Knight in the first place. There's the kind of Death Knights that we saw that that Gul'dan created, Death Knights like uh, Terra and Gorfiend. Mm-hmm. Um, very different from the kind of Death Knight that Arthas was, and Arthas was very different than the Death Knights he created. Arthas wasn't dead when he started. Correct. Uh, it, it, we, it's kind of it's very hard to say when Arthas died. Um, did he die when he touched Frostmourne? Did he die when he put on the helm? I mean, I you, at some point he ripped out his own heart. So at some point he was certainly dead, but it's very hard to say exactly when it happened. Uh, when Frostmourne ripped his soul out, did he die then? Did his soul trans- travel off to its own reward at that point? Was his soul torn in half, much like Uther's soul was torn in half? Is there a good Arthas soul out there somewhere that already went to the Shadowland of its choice or its its destiny? And then the evil parts of his soul that were left in his body and became the Lich King? You got me. I don't know. Is he the one that's trapped in the gem inside of Kingsmorn? Yeah, that's a, another good possibility. There's there's a lot of we know that the other the other Lich King, the first Lich King, um, is going to be seen in the raid. Um, Nerzul shows up in in the Torghast raid, and he's very clearly not in the jailer's good graces. Um, so the kind of Death Knight that Arthas was is that the kind of Death Knight. The, you know that's not the same kind of death knight as what we get from the the ebon blade yeah does does that mean is that more akin to what anduin is i don't think so i don't think anduin does clearly not for whatever reason arthas did the things he did because at the behest of the lich king but he did them himself yeah he was he himself he was not yeah. he was not 
coerce is argue, not the right word. We could argue for uh, the exact terminology here, but but basically it's like this. Arthas was was corrupted, but still acting on his own volition. Mm-hmm. He listened to the Lich King. He did what the Lich King wanted, but he did so because it was his decision to do so. It's very clear that Anduin is not making his own decisions. He's fighting them. He regrets them and hates them. He doesn't want these things. He doesn't want to do these things. There's a difference. So if we're talking about Anduin, I don't think Anduin's a death knight. If we're talking about death knights in general, can they recover from it? It doesn't seem so because they're dead. Yeah, and that's the big distinction, right? Like, yeah. Every single person that is a Death Knight currently died. They're not. Yeah. They're not just given runic powers. They're not just given access to this, uh, the 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 font of power through the Lich King or whatever it was. The, the how you how you do it. Ever since the beginning, ever since they were introduced as player characters, and ever since the Ebon Blade were a thing, they are dead folks brought to life again in some capacity to serve as knights for the Lich King. And. As a result of that, even after they got their will and and rebelled against the Lich King, the ones from the Abbot Blade, they're still dead. Yeah, they're still. Morgrain is still dead. He's twice over. Mm -hmm. They're they're very much dead people who use the you know the 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 Death Knight magic is what keeps them going. They can't recover from that. They can just die. They could just give up and become you know I now I'm dead and not moving. You're welcome. Uh, you know, that, that that's that's the best they could hope for. I guess you could resurrect them, I guess, if you had powerful enough magic or something. But whatever. I, that's World of Warcraft okay. has resurrection spells, but in the canon and the lore, it's extremely rare. So the, I'm going to say that, you know, maybe you could res one, but it doesn't seem likely. The, the, the only wild card I would really say that's there, and I don't even know if it would really qualify too much of a wild card is the Kaliamenethil stuff, because we still don't have a determination of what she actually is. Yeah, and we don't know if that's something that other people could become. Exactly. But in terms of, like, other Death Knights, I don't know. I would say no. Like, for instance, uh, the first wave of Death Knights, absolutely not, because they weren't just dead. They were dead, and their souls were, like, inside truncheons that they had to carry around. So, yeah. You you notice when when we free Terran Gorfiend in, in, in Burning Crusade... As soon as he gets free, he finds a body and immediately turns back into a human. Like he goes and possesses another human body. Yep. You know, that's the first thing he does. That's how they worked. So yeah, no, they don't recover. They're they're definitely that kind of dead thing. Anduin, I don't know if he could re- recover or not, but let's tie into your to Zul's question. Yeah, and so just to to round this out, Zul asked the question: What? Why would the jailer pick Anduin to do his dirty work? It's not like Anduin has ever done that much for Azeroth or even existence as a whole. The player has done so much more, but we individually, collectively, were never a target for their plans. Why are we ignored over a freshly minted king boy? Frowny face. We um. Yeah, I'm gonna first off say you're kind of cutting Anduin real. I was short just here. going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a little bit. Unfair. I just I had to get that. It's out, it's a little why. unfair to Anduin and what he's what he's been doing since he's been involved in the main storyline. I mean, he's Th- always been things, there. Yeah, things Anduin has done um, as, as a child opposed the forces of Anixia, mm-hmm. got kidnapped by Anixia. I mean, again, you know, you may not like that the fact that the comics exist, but in those comics, got kidnapped by Anixia, helped fight her, like he shot at her with a bow and arrow when he was like ten years old. Uh, watched his, you know, the guy who raised him from practical infancy die, uh, reconciled with his father, learned how to control the holy light, studied with Velen. Studied um, with the dwarves. Yeah, studied with the dwarves. Was there during the cataclysm opening when the, the, um, the dwarves went into chaos, saw that all happen, saw one of his friends die in the elemental chaos, the dwarf that had been escorting him, uh, watched his father nearly kill uh, but Moira. Yeah, I can't remember. Her name. Thank you, Moira, uh, and and managed to talk his father out of killing Moira, thus preserving the peace and keeping the alliance together. Helping found um, the Council of the Three Hammers as a result of that. Yeah, uh, took part in defending Stormwind. He, Mr. Pandaria wouldn't have unfolded the way it did without him. I mean, the guy went to Pandaria. He escaped his escorts, wandered Pandaria, making friends and allies. Opposed Garage Hellstream directly. Hung suffered a- great. Hung out with a black dragon for a little while. Learned a whole lot about that as well. Yeah, got his body shattered by like the the, the mystic bell there, the the bell of evil. What do you? I forget what we call it, but you know the one I'm talking mm-hmm. about. I can't remember the name of it uh, either. But you know, then took part in Garash's trial. Like went head to toe with Garash, who you know, I mean, 
think what you want about Garage Hellscream. It's you're you're Andrew and Rain, and you step into a cell with that guy. The dude's like seven and a half feet tall. He's like literally made of muscle. He makes other orcs look small. Mm-hmm. He's big enough that he could almost look Karen in the eye. Um, you know, and you just walk into a cell with that dude, uh, you know, and, and you feel like you have common cause with him and it's clear Garash felt the same. He didn't like Anduin, but he respected him, but respected him enough to talk to him. Let's not forget about the battle of Lordaeron. What happened there with him, with him being able to, to mass resurrect mass bubble, uh, at an incredible powerful rate that has never been seen with Void Wielder the light up to that point. Um, skipping stuff because he did bunch stuff during legion he did stuff well. during legion as well yes but i mean like he is an integral part of the story and he has done a lot he hasn't done a lot of the big flashy things that we have done as champions are our respective uh factions but that doesn't mean he hasn't been important you could also ask the same thing about gen Greymane. what has he done or or any of the other npcs but at the end of the day the reason you don't see things about them in the story is because the world of warcraft story technically isn't about them it's about us and our adventures to a certain degree obviously the, everything plays around out around us but you're not he hasn't to do as many thrall kill steals doesn't mean he isn't important exactly and thrall for that matter we can get back to thrall thrall i actually like thrall as a character and i think he's important but the dude does have a really bad habit that's why i liked in the in the cinematic for uh that you know the battle for azeroth cinematic with uh with Sarfang is that Thrall doesn't jump in and do anything. I like that. It's like he finally realized, not my deal. Yep. Yeah. And but but yeah, there's get, a there's a lot to this man. But, but yeah. to get back to get back to why he the jailer picked Anduin. Matt and I talked about this on a previous episode of Lore Watch. We also talked about this when we did our special uh, BlizzCon recap, and we did a whole bunch of other stuff. And I would really encourage you to go back and maybe listen to a few of those episodes. But the short version is Anduin is a perfect vessel. It has nothing to do with that he hasn't done anything and that he's less important than we are. He has he he calls to the light and wields it through him in a way that is almost like selfless, but also Lacking of a self self evaluation would really be the best way to put it. We start to see a little bit of it when you in uh, Shadows Rising, where he's trying to sneak out and he's at a bar and he's listening and he's doing things. Anduin hasn't had a chance to develop his own identity yet, not really, and partially for all the reasons that we just listed out and more. He's gone from being a child regent to you know, being a student of the Holy Light to dealing with essentially an intergalactic threat uh, to dealing with the reality collapsing in on itself to his father dying, to having to take over for the entirety of the Alliance and not just the human kingdoms. His father was the de facto leader of the Alliance as a whole. He was the one that they all looked up to or looked to for direction. And with him gone, it fell to him. He has never had an opportunity to be a kid, to develop his own personality personality to figure out who he is he doesn't necessarily have a perfect sense of self you even see that when he's talking with sarfang when they're going back and forth sarfang basically calls it out he's like you don't know who you are right and i'm paraphrasing because i don't have time to sit here and relay the entire conversation but, but you can absolutely see it when you watch sarfang talk to and anduin's like but no the horde is and sarfang's like you don't know sarfang's like you're a kid i know when i'm talking to a kid yeah, and I, it's, it's this is not out of disrespect. Sarfang isn't giving him crap. He's just saying straight up, no, this is how it is. This is what I've experienced. This is what I've seen. You know, we were we did awful things, and we need to we need to come to terms with that. For Anduin, it's always been you've seen it from the beginning. You saw it when he went to, to Pandaria. He wants to believe the best in everybody all the time. He is baffled by evil. He's not. It's one of those. It's not a flaw in him. But it is a character, it's a trait. He has not been disillusioned yet. And when he started to get disillusioned, it's it's really been hard for him. He has he doesn't know who he is because he's never had time to be mm-hmm. who he is, as Joe put it. And that's, that's it's harder to, to fend off this kind of thing that the Jailer is doing to him when you don't have, you know, when you're in your worst moments, who you are defines your response. Mm-hmm. Varian 
it's Varian would have resisted better, not because Varian was stronger or more noble or had a stronger will. He knows who he was. Varian had been through hell. He had lost. He'd been. He lost his his parents and his city. He lost his wife. Uh, he he had his self torn in half and jammed together. And the other, the worst part about Varian's life is that he wasn't put together right. Yeah, like he wasn't rejoined properly. He it was like a, a mishmash. There was like pieces of him that didn't get back there. Because and it the, took years for him to find balance or even yeah. act normal. And at the end of it all, he had had those experiences. And he knew who he was. And the same with Gen. The same with Sylvanas. Sylvanas knows, you know, at least you know, before she died, she knew who she was and possibly does now. And and to sort of go back to the point, we as characters have been through so much at this point. Yeah, we always, you know, we started off with like our little journey at level one, killing like wolves or scorpions. Yeah, we know, you know, we've been through how many catastrophic events. And we, but we had the chance to experience them exactly. and process them. Anduin has not. Exactly. Anduin, you know, we started that journey as relative adults. Like if you go back to your first character in World of Warcraft, they're they're a relative adult. Yeah, canonically, depending on if you're an allied race or not, your character has been around for the duration of most of the major events since the Third War. In some cases, if you're like a night elf, you might have even been around during that time. The, you have had the chance to develop an identity and you would not be a good target for it, which is why they try to kill you, not sway you, not use you, not try to get you on their side. They know that they're not going to be able to because you've proven time and time again. If you can resist Nazoth giving you everything that you possibly want or trying to break you down, the jailer is probably going to say, yeah, I'm not going to waste my time on that. That's an investment of effort that I don't want to do. But this one over here, hmm, look at the way he wields the light. And knowing about the light, I know that he can call it into him because he doesn't understand who he is. And he's basically just acting as a conduit. Perfect. Give me. I'll take three of those. Right? Like, it. it that's what makes him a perfect vessel for the jailer's dirty work. He can basically be almost driven around like a drone. So... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it's... No, I, it, think, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that a lot of this comes down to the sense of self versus selflessness. Anduin is by nature selfless. He thinks of others before himself. He wants to help other people before himself. He wants to believe the better in other people, and more so than he does himself. Mm -hmm. Look at, again, going back to Shadows Rising, look at that moment where he goes off and tries to, you know, he's, he's like doing his little disguise bit, and he's, you know, trying to be a normal person. Look at when, you know, he's confronted with... He starts to lose control of himself and starts to like there's shadowy tendrils coming up that Anduin does not know who he is because he spends all his time thinking about other people. And you can see it, too, in the cinematic, like especially in the 9.1 uh, Chains of Domination cinematic after he commits that heinous act when he realizes he has that realization of what happens pieces of him start coming forward and more control has to be exerted over to him it's that's not a mistake that's not just dramatic storytelling that's maybe now that anduin is going through this type of event him starting to figure out who he is and I, I like trying to figure out how to fight out against or fight back against it from the inside out. And you start to see that a little bit with his discussion with Sylvanas too, when he's sitting in Torghast, like he's figuring out who he is as a person. He even says to her, like, you know, essentially I I'm, I again, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, do you even know who you are to her? And he's like, and it's basically, I'm starting to get an idea of who I am and what my limits are. So, that's going to play into it as well, but I, th I think that's the big point, and I think that's what makes him this perfect conduit for the Jailer's power or control or essence, whatever it is that's that's letting him be piloted around like, like that little you know first-person drone. But yeah, that's that's why it's him and not us. That's why it's not anybody else. It's why it can't be Sylvanas. Like, do you, do you not think that Sylvanas would have really wanted to be that? I mean, it goes back to the Lich King. That's why the Lich Kings were always a failure. You have, you, you, I'm sorry, you had uh, Ner'zhul, who was so self-righteous, knew who he was, knew what he was about, figured out what he was doing, and had such a conviction, he couldn't be controlled. Same thing with Arthas. 
Arthas put on that helm, you can't tell me that Arthas wasn't in full control and didn't know who he was. And yes, he made mistakes and he did some really dumb things, but it was his choices. It was his convictions. And then you have Bolvar, who put on the helm. And you can't sit there and tell me that Bolvar doesn't have one of the strongest presences uh, and and selfness or self-awareness of anybody else that has ever worn yeah, the helm. In each case, they've all taken time. Like yeah. in both Arthas and Bolvar's case, they took time to actually come to grips with what they were dealing with. They didn't have it slapped on them all at once directly from the source like Anduin has. Yeah. But yeah, so I hope that answers your question. Uh, I don't think there's really anything else to add on that one, but uh, I'm well, I mean, sure it's us. We could do we like could. an entire show about it but yeah <laughs> but blizzard watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzard watch your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow blizzard watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ad free site experience um for you the listeners of blizzard watch audible is offering a free book uh, audiobook download with a 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out the service this is a perfect opportunity for you to check out war crimes or arthas before before the next book comes out and get yourself an idea of what type of character we might be dealing with uh, when we come to the new book when Sylvanas is released. Uh, you can download many of Blizzard's titles as well as thousands of others at blizzardwatch.com audible. And again, if you have questions for the show or the other show, you can go ahead and send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or go ahead and toss them into our Discord in one of the various channels that we have set aside for it. And again, we always do try to look for the Patreon supporters first, which all of today's questions were, were given to us by them. So thank you very much for your continued support. But with that, we'll see you next week. 